haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, what you see is sin kind of personified as various parts of the body, which is, makes it poetic and makes it really easy to remember. But look at this. Holiness, we would say, we would probably even agree with this, that holiness requires that God hate those who murder the innocent or who run eagerly into evil. But look at what God also hates. Those aren't the only sins on the list. God also hates prideful people, lying people, contentious people who stir up trouble, and the heart of every person who ever planned to do wrong, even when they knew it was wrong. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever known that something was wrong? Yeah, John, me too, man. Uh, have known that something was wrong but planned to do it anyway? Guess what? God hates you at the moment when you do that. I know this part's not very encouraging, but hang on here, okay? We're going to get there. We're going to get to the encouraging part of the sermon, I, I promise. But I want you to see sin from God's perspective, which is why we're going through this. Uh, and by the way, God's hatred towards sin and sinners is not simply limited to those who are outside his covenant people. You don't have to turn there, but look, you can look at Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. This is what Hosea says uh, on behalf of God to God's covenant people, Israel. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of, their, out of my house, and I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Rebellion and evil among God's people are just as much a target of God's wrath as rebellion and evil among everybody else. God says, I will love them no more. That's serious. That's strong words. That's rough. God is not simply waxing poetic. He's not simply saying, you know, I really don't like it when you sin. Sin is serious business with God. More serious than you may realize. It results in serious consequences from him. And we want to look at some of those consequences. That's the next section here. Over to Romans chapter 1. If you turn there, what you can see is that God justly judges sinners. In the nation of Canada, it is considered criminal to even read this text. Same thing in Sweden, but I want to read it for you. Paul writes these words. You ready? Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with those that are, for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What's the point? Uh, this whole section, this whole section here of Romans 1 is a description of what theologians describe as God's passive wrath. In other words, that God, being a just God, has created the whole universe and all of human life to be operated on moral principles. And to say it another way, God has rigged human life so that it only works well when his commands are obeyed. And those who decide they want to rebel against God and have nothing to do with him, God has a very special judgment for them. It's, okay, you want nothing to do with me? Go ahead. Party on. Enjoy it. You want to serve and worship that which is a created thing rather than the creator who made all those created things? Go ahead. You want to sin, you want to rebel against God, you want to engage in all kinds of perversion and hatred and evil, go ahead. See how that, see how that works for you. In other words, if someone, someone, some, people sometimes ask me, you think God is going to judge America? And what I tell them is, he already has. Read Romans 1. These are the manifestations of God's wrath against sin. When these sorts of things start to characterize your society, they're indicators that God is currently judging you. When your whole society becomes filled with people who, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, Hating God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When people start to sort of fit that profile, it's an indicator that your society is under God's judgment. Because God is a just God. He has created a moral universe to operate according to moral principles. And when 
when people decide they're going to reject God, these are what kind of people result. This is what happens. Having nothing to do with God means having you get to have nothing to do with God. And life goes crazy. And sin always brings destruction, not just personally, but socially and culturally and nationally. And it's an example of God's passive wrath. But God's wrath is not just passive. There are also active forms of it. There are times when God actively chooses to step into human history, and one of those is coming. I don't know if uh, the Mayan calendar is predictive of anything much, other than that maybe they ran out of numbers. I don't know. Uh, but I do know this, that God in his word promises that a day is coming, a future period called the Great Tribulation, when God's wrath against sin and sinners is going to be revealed. It's going to be justly poured out on the whole world. And if you read Revelation chapter 6, what you see is the opening of the seal judgments that God pours out on the earth. And part of the really poetic part of that that people remember is the arrival with each the opening of the four of those seals of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And judgment from God, his active wrath is poured out on all of unbelieving humanity in such a way that in chapter uh, 6, verse 16 and 17, the apostle John writes these words. They will call on the mountains and the rocks, saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? God is a just God, and he justly judges. And his holy wrath will be exercised in an active fashion one day, and maybe even soon. And, of course, that isn't even the worst of God's just judgments. Look with me over at 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 4 through 8. I taught through Second Peter not that long ago, but look at this here. Second Peter chapter three verses four to eight. They will say, these are scoffers in the last days. They will say, "Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. In other words, Peter is saying this. Peter is saying, look, Judgment is coming. And people may scoff and they may mock and they may say, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't intervene in human history and he doesn't. he's not the kind of God that brings judgment. Peter says, yes, he is. And if you need an, a quintessential example, look back at Genesis 6 where God's heart was grieved that he had made man on the earth and what did he then decide to do? 
drowned them all, except for Noah and his family, who found grace and mercy in the sight of God. But apart from that, would have been destroyed right along with everybody else. God is a just God who justly judges sin and wickedness and evil. And Peter says, you don't know when this is coming, but be assured it's coming, and this time not in water but in fire. Paul talks about the same thing in a slightly different way. 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. If you ever want to read some words that will keep you up at night... Read these out of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Look with me at verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying God is just. Those who suffer from affliction and persecution at the hands of sinners now will one day be paid back. Jesus is coming back, and he is coming in wrath against all those who do not know God and who have rejected the gospel. And theirs will be the future described in, in these verses. It is filled, I think this is the most terrifying description of hell in the entire Bible. That you are cut off from God and the majesty of his power for eternity. The thing is about being cut off from God, a lot of you may think that is no big deal. That's no great thing. But here's the reality. Everything that is good, that, in, that makes life worth living, that is enjoyable comes from God. And so to be cut off from God is to be cut off from light that he made, to be cut off from other people that he created, to be cut off from relationship, from friendship, from everything that makes life worth living and to be unable to die because you are experiencing death for eternity outside of the presence of God. God is a just God, and he does judge justly. Now, I promise you there's going to be some hope in this sermon. And we want to turn there to the book of 1 John, chapter 2, and look at the beginning of verse 1. Because this is grim stuff. But this is the black-robed deity that we worship, the God who judges the God who expresses his hatred against sin and sinners in judgment and their destruction. And he is right to do that. He is right to do that. 
Because if you are a sinner, you are not only a rebel and a traitor, you are the person who is destroying all that God made good. And so God's just judgment is to condemn you to his punishment. Look at 1 John, though, chapter 1. This is great stuff. I mean, chapter 2 here. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the, this is the word I want you to get out of today. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's what John is saying. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the sacrifice which satisfied God's wrath against us. He made peace between us and God by his death. By the shedding of his blood, he established peace between us and God. His self-sacrifice for us and for even the entire world appeased God's holy wrath against our sin. And Jesus now stands in the gap on our behalf as our defense attorney, as it were, before a holy God. And he says, look, in my own body, I bore the penalty that these people and their sins deserved. And it is an idea, honestly, that is just so completely massive for me. And that ought to be massive for you that you can't even get your arms around this idea that everything about you is hated by God. And yet at the same time, God loved you. And so he sent his son to be the satisfaction of his just judgment and holy wrath against you. Though there would have been nothing wrong and everything right with God judging you and sending you to hell. Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. He is the gift that is given by God to God to satisfy His holy wrath. Now, you know, you may have trouble getting your arms around that idea of propitiation. Guys, think of it this way. If you're in a doghouse and you bring home flowers, you're making a propitiatory offering. You're hoping to appease the wrath of your spouse, right? Okay? God's wrath is not just, I'm grumpy and I had a bad day and I'm angry at you. God's wrath is holy wrath against you and your sin. And it can only be satisfied by somebody paying the death penalty. Either you or Jesus. God in his love enables his wrath to be satisfied through Jesus. 
to be the propitiation for your sins. And what you see as you look closely at the text, look at this, that Jesus is not only saving us from death, he is saving us from sin. He's not only the peace offering between us and God, he's also the thing by which we are delivered from sin's power over us. And when we Christians speak of being saved, we often think of it simply as being saved from going to hell. And that's good. We ought to think of it that way because it's one of the primary ways the Scripture speaks of it. But it's also being saved and delivered from the power of sin over us so that we're able to do what John talks about, to walk as Jesus walked. To walk not according to the former way of life that we used to have when we were sinners. Now we are God's redeemed people whom, whom Jesus has bought for himself with his own blood. And therefore we're able not to sin. Not to say that we're going to be sinless, but we are going to sin less. In the early part of the, 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 the passage here, John talks about, look, I write this so that you won't sin. If you do sin, you've got an advocate before God. But if you really know God, you ought to be sin. You ought to be sinning less, even if you are not yet sinless. You ought to be walking as Jesus walked, because Jesus came not simply to save you from the wrath of God, but to save you from being destroyed by your own sin. Thirty years ago, I was the missions conference is coming up in a couple of weeks, and it reminded me of this. Thirty years ago, I saw a movie that absolutely changed my life. Now, you wouldn't think that that would be possible, that a movie would change your life, but this one changed my life and gave me a new perspective on thinking about God. The movie was called Peace Child. Great movie. Great book. If you've ever, if you've not ever read it, it tells the story of Don Richardson and his wife, Carol, and how they moved to Papua New Guinea and lived among a bunch of headhunter cannibals uh, called the Sawi. And the Sawi were a nasty, vicious, terrible people. When he tried to tell them the stories about Jesus, they all cheered for Judas. I kid you not, they did. Because in their culture, the idea of penetrating into someone's inner circle so that you could betray them was one of their highest values. And finally, Richardson and his wife were so frustrated by their inability to share Christ with these people, they decided that's it. They're violent. Let them kill each other. We're leaving. We're done. And the Sawi liked having them, and they said, you know, what could we do to make you stay? I can't think of anything. <laughs> We're done with you people. You can murder each other in the bush and eat each other for all I care. And the Sawi said, well, if we make peace, will you stay? And they said, yeah, but we can't trust you to make permanent peace between you. You're always at war. And when you're not at war, you're only gathering strength for the next time. They said, well, we have a custom. And we'll make peace. And their custom was the giving of the peace child. And what you did was you took the oldest son of the chief in each village and you swapped. 
And the oldest son of the chief from this village went to live in the other village. And the oldest son from this village went to go live in the other. And they were raised up in that village. And as long as the peace child lived, there was peace between this warring faction and this one. And I watched that movie, and, of course, they make the point at the end, which is absolutely startling. They said, now we had an opportunity. Now we had a way to share what had happened and how God had made peace with us, that he had sent his son into our village to live with us and to be the peace child, the peace the peacemaking one between us and God. And what did we do? We killed him. Saul, we immediately understood what that would mean. That it would mean that those two villages went back to war. And that God, if we slaughtered his peace child, would have immediately gone back to war with us. And they said, no, no, no. Please understand. God was at war with us and we with him. But he, and he sent his peace child his oldest son, his only begotten son, to live among us as the peace child. And we killed him. And God used his death to cover over our sin. And he didn't leave him dead. He raised him up so that the peace child would always live and always establish peace between us and him. It's a great story. Changed my life. Because I thought when I saw that movie, I want to do that. I want to be the person who is telling people about being at war with God. And living at war with God. But now being able to be at peace through Jesus, who God sent to be the peace child, the propitiation for our sins, the one who made peace between us and God, Though naturally, according to God's holiness and justice, we should be at war with him, and we are at war with him by all of our rebellion and sin. God sent Jesus to establish peace. i got two questions here as I close. Number one, have you made peace with God? Have you made peace with God? God has sent Jesus to be the propitiation for your sins. Have you accepted his peace offering made through the blood of Jesus, through his death and resurrection on your behalf? He is making available the opportunity not to be at war with him anymore, but to be at peace and to be adopted into his family and to be given new life and to not suffer judgment, but to be a person who escapes from God's judgment and enjoys the glory of his presence. Have you made peace with God? If you've not done that, all you would have to do is to say to God, I recognize I've been at war with you my whole life, with my sin and my rebellion against you. And, Father, today I am placing my complete trust in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for all the wickedness I've ever done or ever will do. I believe that he died for me and was raised from the dead. And I'd like to be at peace. And at that very moment, 
the peace treaty is signed between you and God and lasts forever. Second question, Jesus came not only to save us from God's wrath, but from the sin that justly brings God's wrath on us. And if you are a Christian, you have been saved from both sin and wrath. But a lot of us are content that we, since we won't face judgment in hell, we don't worry overly much about our sin. John says, we know that we have come to know him if we walk as he walked. And everyone who says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So let me ask you, by that standard, how are you doing? Are you keeping Jesus' commandments? Are you walking as Jesus walked? Because Jesus came to save you not just from hell, but from sin itself. How are you doing right there? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I do thank you that Jesus Christ is propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. In Jesus Christ, the crucified Savior, your wrath was satisfied. It was poured out on him, all that we deserved, and he cried out, I thirst, from the cross, so that none of us would have to cry out, I thirst in hell, cut off from you. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me that I would never have to cry from hell that same way? He bore the punishment I deserved, and I received better than I deserve, and so do these when they place their trust in you of making the, the peace offering in Jesus Christ the peace child who came into our world to live among us, to live a life we couldn't live, and we put him to death. But you used his very murder by us to be the thing which satisfied your anger against us forever and ever. And Father, I pray that we would be at peace with you through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.